Peter, continuing our, our series, we're going to look at 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be in, starting in verse 13 here uh, today. After listening to a long, drawn-out sermon, one young man was very frustrated as he walked out of the church doors. He had to be corrected on numerous occasions uh, by his dad because he was fidgeting the entire time during the message. And as he walked out of the doors with this sad look on his face, frowned uh, look on his face, one of the greeters as he walks out says, well, young, young Justin, what's wrong? And he says, it's really hard to be holy and happy at the same time. You know, I think uh, that little Justin speaks for many of us, doesn't he? It's hard to be happy and holy at the same time. Some of us think that, well, if I'm going to be holy, then I can't be happy. Because if I'm going to be holy, I have to be in a somber mood, and I can't smile, and I can't have any fun, and I can't dance, and I can't play cards, and I can't go out with my friends. I should just walk around like this all the time, and I should say, hi, I'm a Christian, you should be like me. That's not what Christianity is. Now, here's the other side of that. Some people think in order to be happy, you have to be completely unholy. And so they take it to the far opposite extreme. But what I want us to see here today is that we can be happy and holy together. And the way that we see this is the way to happiness is through Holiness, Or, as we've been talking about, a more accurate description is the pathway to joy is scattered with joys, trials, and struggles. And that's what we have to focus in upon. C.S. Lewis once said, How little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. If even 10% of the world's population had it, would not the whole world be converted and happy before the year's end? Last, last week we discovered that the prophets predicted salvation, the apostles proclaimed salvation, and the angels prized salvation. And if all of that is true, how could we possibly be bored? How, as Christians, could we ever get bored with God and seeing the work that He is always doing? So Peter is helping us to see that when we suffer, we need to lock in on our salvation. As we come to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, the mood of the letter starts to change just a little bit. You see, it started off as indicative of what is true, and it moves into the imperative, which is what we need to do. And we see that very first word in verse 13, it says, therefore. You see, after establishing what it is that we believe, now we're challenged to behave according, accordingly and to live it out. That's what we've been called to do. So let's read verses 13 through 17. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But, <clears throat> excuse me, but as He has called you to be holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. Now, there's three things that we see within this scripture, and I just want to break them down. 
And the very first one we read in verse 13 is we have been called to be hopeful. We have been called to be hopeful. That's what we see here. But in an in a seemingly imploding world, where everything seems to be crashing down all around us, whether that be in the political view, whether that be uh, in, the, in, in the actual stock market, whatever it is, it seems like everything is just imploding all around us, making it harder and harder to live this life with any sense of hope. But that's what we're able to see as we dig into verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. To set your hope fully means to set your hope completely, totally, and utterly into Jesus. To have an absolute certainty of future good. It's the idea of future expectation. Eager expectation. Now we've talked about the differences of the types of hope that we have. There's those out there that, well, I hope I have a good day at work. Well, I hope I win the lottery. Well, I hope, and and you, we can throw all kinds of things out there, but that's not the hope that we have in Christ because it's a, it's a for sure thing. And, And that's the difference that we're truly able to see here. One person put it like this. Other men see only a hopeless end. But the Christian sees the endless hope. Romans 4.18 holds up the example of Abraham to us who have hope even when it seems hopeless. Who contrary to hope, in hope believed. Abraham was able to have that even when it felt like everything was going around. He didn't have his family. He didn't have anything around him. He wasn't for sure exactly what he should be doing. But he had hope. He believed, even when it seemed like it was contrary. Do you see what we're to set our hope on? We're to focus on the grace that is coming when Jesus returns. We are called to focus in on his second coming. And that's something that we have all been called to do. Here's the thing. When we talk about this hope with everything going on around us, we go, oh my goodness, we want to, Travis, you're telling us that we should have hope, but this world that we're living in, everything is falling apart around us. I mean, the Antichrist is sitting in Washington, D.C. right now. Now, for all of you that are laughing about that, just a few short years ago, people said the same thing about... Barack Obama, right? He's the Antichrist. And they said the thing about both of the Bushes, didn't they? And they said the same thing about, you know, Saddam Hussein. He was the Antichrist. And they said about, go all the way back. And and everybody said, well, Hitler, Hitler in in the 1940s, he is the Antichrist and he is the second coming. Guess what? We're still here. From the beginning, uh, uh, from the time that Jesus left this earth, people have been waiting and preparing for the end of the world. And that's something that we have to understand. Peter, when he wrote this, he truly believed that Jesus was going to come back in his life. Paul, we're going to read a scripture in First Timothy here in just a second. Paul believed that Jesus was going to come back in his life. We need to do the same exact thing. We need to always be prepared. It's not a hope of, well, I hope that this world is going to get better. It's probably not. But I have hope in what is to come in the next 
life. And that's what I put my focus in upon. Second Timothy chapter three, verses one through five, the apostle Paul says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. And each generation has been able to say that. And each generation says that about the next generation coming up. Okay? The baby boomer said it about the, the generation X. Generation X are now saying it about millennials. Oh, they just have no respect. They don't understand. Well, it, it's, guess what? It's gonna continue to cycle through. And that's what we need to see. But we need to hold on to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. You see, when we set our hope fully on His appearing, it will have a purifying effect on the way that we live right now as well. First John chapter 3, verse 3 says, And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. And if we go back to First John chapter 2, verse 28, we read there, and now little children abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. I think there's two things that Peter really wants us to understand when it comes to being hopeful. The first one is to be intentional in your minds. Be intentional in your minds. Verse 13 has this unusual phrase. If you read the King James and even the New King James Version, <clears throat> One of the phrases that we read there, it says, therefore, gird up your loins. Now, how many of you have ever said that today? I'm going to start using it on the softball field because it'll be awesome. Well, the, the, the background, <clears throat> excuse me, the background of that was that in the first century, uh, and, and actually all through time before we had these wonderful inventions of jeans, um, they would just wear long flowing robes. And they would put a belt around their robes to hold everything down to where it didn't blow up, I would hope. Um, but they wore these long flowing robes and whenever it was time to go on a run, whenever they were going to work hard, when they were going to wrestle, whatever it was, they would pull it up and they would tuck it into their belt. So they were ready to go to work. And that was the girding up of their loins. I mean, women, have you ever had a long flowing dress on and then tried to go run a marathon? You haven't done that. You know, or, and I've seen women do that, where they need to walk fastly or, or briskly. They grab their dress and they kind of pull it up just a little bit. And then they can run a little quicker because their legs don't get caught and shuffled in it. Girding up your loins, that's what it means. It means to be prepared, to be ready, to be intentional. Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, God's people are told to be ready for the Passover and when they partake of the Passover. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
Nothing was to hold them back when it was time to move forward either. In 1 Kings chapter 18 verse 46, Elijah girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab. Jesus told his followers to be ready for the master's return. In Luke chapter 21 verse 34, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. Be prepared. We might say it's time to roll up our sleeves and get to work. But many times, mental laziness sets in, doesn't it? We just kind of let things get into our lives. And then we just stop thinking about it. Again, this is why I pointed out just a second ago, Peter truly believed it was going to happen in his lifetime. Paul believed it was going to happen in his lifetime. We need to believe it's going to happen in our lifetime, that Jesus could come back at any moment. He says, behold, I am coming soon. That's what we read. And we need to be prepared. Why does he not give us a date? Because if he gave us a date and said, well, I'm not going to come back until 3,102 and 59 seconds, we would go, well, I don't have to do anything. That's for everybody else. Well, I don't need to talk to my neighbor. I don't like him anyways. I'll wait until the next person moves in. Then they can talk to him about Jesus. Well, I don't have to really be ready to go to church until it's time for me to die because Jesus isn't really going to come back. You see, what this tells us is that we need to be prepared. And the second thing that, that Peter drives home is don't live inebriated lives. Notice the next words, being sober-minded. While the scripture warns against being drunk, it doesn't tell us that we're not allowed to drink. It says don't be like the drunkard. But in this context, what we're seeing here, Peter's main concern is that that we're not living under the influence of that life around us. To be on guard, that we don't get intoxicated with everything that this culture and everything has around us. You, to be sober-minded means to be clear-headed, to keep all of our faculties fully operational. One, one of my favorite shows to watch right now uh, is Live PD. Anybody watch it? couple of you? No, you need to, okay? Um, it's a really cool show. It's three hours, and when you can't sleep, you just watch that, and you'll fall asleep. But... But one of the things in watching that show, um, I love it when they make them take the field sobriety tests. And, you know, one night, Teresa and I were, were watching it, and we were like, I don't even know if we could do that. Let's try it. So we got up, and actually we're trying it, you know, because they make you, you know, walk one foot in my back, her knees, and, you know, like trying to walk in a straight line and keep your hands down to your side. I can't, officer, you know. I promise I haven't been drinking, but, you know... And then they make you hold your foot out and they're watching your eyes and all this kind of stuff. And one night I was watching the show and this guy, uh, he says, okay, I want you to take nine or ten steps forward, heel to toe, and then I want you to turn around and I want you to come back. <laughs> After 42 steps, he stopped him. He was trying to prove <laughs> that he wasn't inebriated and he was capable of driving. Well, for us, how, how, how does that affect us? We need to make sure that we are staying focused. That we're not letting all of this other stuff get into our lives. That we are clear-headed. That's what we again read uh, in, in Luke. It says, be 
but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Are you alert? Are you focused? Are you prepared? Because if we go a little bit later in 1 Peter to chapter 5, in verse 8 we read, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks around about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You ever just watch the lion, you watch one of the uh, Discovery Channel or whatever else, and you're just watching the animal planet, and that lion, he's king of the jungle. There is nothing that scares him. And he walks around just prowling, looking for his next meal. Because he knows that he is at the top of the food chain. Well, the devil thinks he's at the top of the food chain. So he walks around. Not worried about anything that could possibly come at him. But he's prowling, looking for each one of us. So we need to be prepared. So first off, we need to see that... Hold on, lost my point. Ah, We need to be hopeful. Be hopeful. Secondly, be holy. Be holy. Verses 15 and 16 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The word but indicates that there's going to be a contrast here. We need to be hopeful by being intentional in our minds that we're living not inebriated lives and we're staying true, but while we're called to avoid sin, we must also delight in God. Our standard for living is not those that are around us, but God himself. Because if I look around this room, I'm like, well, I'm better than most of them. There's a few, hold on now, hold on now. But there's a few of them that I'm like, ooh, I should live better. And we start comparing ourselves to one another, right? But when we compare ourselves to God, what happens? We realize that none of us are good enough. That we all fall short. That we're all lacking. So we need to compare ourselves to Him, not just to one another. You see, the holiness of God is the only one of His attributes that is, le- that is elevated to the third degree. We never read a scripture that says, love, love, love. Omnipresent, omnipresent, omnipresent. But what do we read? Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6, 3 and several other verses say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. We see it again in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. You shall be holy for I am holy. So how do we, how do we see that in our lives? How are we called to be holy? Be holy in your gaming. Be holy on the web. Be holy on your phone in your dating relationships, in your marriage, where you hang out, in your sports, playing or watching, at home, in your neighborhood, at work, in your thoughts. Here's the concept. Be holy in everything that is around you. Now, does that mean that you're going to be perfect? (laughs) Nope. 
being holy doesn't mean perfection. It means striving to perfection. And realizing that we're all sinners and that we all make a mess of our lives. That we all sin. That we all mess up. But I'm going to do my best. And I'm going to live for him however I possibly can. One of the things that we need to also understand is that we'll never just drift towards holiness. If anything, we're going to drift further away from holiness. So how do we stay focused? How do we go after it? Well, live to please your Father. Live to please your Father. Verse 14 begins with, As obedient children. I wish I had obedient children. Honestly, Oh, he woke up, uh huh, talking about him. He's like, What? I actually have really good children that are obedient, that do listen most of the time. In the biblical language, to be a child of something is to be controlled by that something. The word for obedient means here under, submitting and serving. Now, how do we, how do we see that? Well, we need to be able to call on God as dad. As daddy, as one who is right there beside us, who is in a relationship with us. But we also have to see him as father as well. And that's very important for us to be able to understand that distinction. Because there's going to be times in your life as fathers that you're going to not be able to just to be your child's friend. You're going to have to lay down the law. And for some of you, you're like, but I want him to like me. No, it's their job to hate you. That's what they're called to do. But if you treat them as your children and not just as their friend, but if you be a father or a mother instead of just a mom or a best friend, one of those days they will come back. And they're going to go, Hey, Dad. Hey, Mom. Thanks. Thanks for being hard on me. I didn't like it, but thank you. Because now I have the work ethic that I'm supposed to have. Now I have, and and we need to do the same thing with God. There's times that he, we're going to read his scripture, or someone's going to say something to us, and we're going to go, I don't like that, because it hurts. But, thank you. Because you kept me on the right track. Secondly, Don't live like you used to. Verse 14 says, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The phrase conformed is in the present tense, which means that we're to constantly be conforming. That we constantly are in the mold. That we are the clay in the potter's hands. That we are ever changing. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. I want to read the English Standard Version, but then I'm going to read... The paraphrase in the message of today's language. So, in the English Standard Version, we read, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect Will. Now, the paraphrase of what we would read in the modern English would be this. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. 
take your everyday, ordinary life, you're sleeping, you're eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what it wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Incidentally, I want to remind you of who Paul and Peter were writing to. They were writing to Christians who were struggling, who were dealing with some really, really hardships in their life. Christians were being persecuted. They were being put to death. Remember, Nero was the emperor. He was lighting Christians on fire while they were still alive to light his garden at night. Something that we really don't suffer much here in America, right? But that's what they were going through. And here, Paul and Peter are saying, hey, hold on to that life. Hold firm. Because you know what is coming afterwards. And that's the important thing for us. In short, we're not to go back and do what we used to do because we're no longer who we used to be. Don't go back and do what you used to do because you're not who you used to be. So let's be hopeful. Let's be holy. And then finally, let's be wholehearted. Verse 17 says, And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. Again, I want to go back to that father-son relationship. Because what we're able to see in all of this is while we're able to call him dad, as we're able to have that true relationship with him, we also need to see him as the one that makes the final judgment call. He is father. He is judge. While we have a relationship with him, we must revere him as well. And we have to hold on to that. Because of that, we're to conduct ourselves accordingly. That's what verse 15 says. You also be holy in all your conduct. As you see on the screen behind you, there's the little w and then spelled out holy. Basically, we are called to be holy, holy. We're good at compartmentalizing, aren't we? Many of you that are in the room work for the government or have worked for the government. And in your lives, you've had to compartmentalize certain things. This is my work, and if I bring it home and talk to you about it, I have to kill you. I've actually heard that from a couple of you, and that's scary. Um, don't tell me about anything you do. Um, just telling you. Um, anyways. <laughs> Sorry. Crack myself up. Um, but we compartmentalize a lot of things in our lives. We can't do that when it comes to our holiness. All-encompassing, we have been called to be holy. So let's break all of this down. How do we live on mission? How do we live out our life on mission and being holy, holy? How do we do that? Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says that they devoted themselves. 
in the midst of all of their enemies around them. This is what we read in Acts chapter 17, verse 6. They turned to the, they turned the world upside down. The enemies of Christianity said that they turned the world upside down. In verses 18 through 21, there are four quick points that I just want to run through, uh, with you. When we look at verse 18, we see that you've been redeemed from aimless living. Verse 18 says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver. You have been ransomed. The price has been paid for you. You have been purchased. Your freedom has been purchased by Jesus. That's what we have to understand. You have been freed. You have been given new direction. Secondly, you've been bought with the blood of Christ. Verse 19 says, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was the sacrificial system for each and every one of us. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says that he bought us with his son. Number three, God's eternal plan involves you. Each one of you. He came to this earth for each one of you that are in this room. Verse 20 says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Did you know that God had a plan for each and every one of you before He ever formed this world? He had a plan for each one of you. He knows exactly what was going to happen in your life. Now there's times that you go, why? Why did he let that happen? Why did God let that hardship come my way? Why did God let that evil come my way? Well, he, if he's perfect, why did he let that hurricane hit the Bahamas and destroy so many lives? It's because of our sin that has just built up over time. The world was created perfect. We were created perfect. And guess who messed it up? (laughs) Us. When we look at the verse with the end of verse 20, the English Standard Version says, of you, for the sake of you. The NIV and New King James and a couple of others actually say that he had a plan for you. Personal. Each one of you. He cares about each one of you that are in this room. Each person that comes in contact with you in your life. He cares for each one of you. And we have to remember that. It's not just for the person sitting on the right or the left, the front of you. He cares for each one of you. And that brings me to the final point. Your faith and hope are rooted in the resurrection. Verse 21 says who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. He died for each one of you. And He could have left at any moment. We read that in the Scriptures that there was a section of angels that were ready to come and get Him at any moment. And He could have went, I'm thirsty. I'm done. I'm tired. I can't get enough rest. 
God, could we have invented the pillow just a little bit earlier? Man, that Peter, he constantly is just messing up. I try to tell him what to do and he messes it up. I try to tell John and James what they're supposed to do, but they're the sons of thunder and I can't get through to them. I'm done. And he chose to stay. And why? For each one of you. (laughs) And most importantly for me. And you can say that about yourselves as well. You are what was on his mind. Country Church was having their annual revival meeting. And that first night of the revival meeting, the preacher preached a message of repentance and how everyone needed to return to the Lord. They were living horrible, sinful lives and it was time to repent and turn back to God. And at the end of the service, here comes a man just running right down the middle aisle and he's yelling, Fill me, Lord! Fill me! Second night of the revival, the preacher challenged the congregation to totally surrender their lives over to him. And as he gave that invitation, right down the middle of the aisle, here comes that same exact guy. And he's yelling, fill me, Lord, fill me. Third night, into the revival. The preacher is just preaching his best. He's talking about the evils. He's talking about the sin that just surrounded the world. He urged the congregation to live holy lives, that they needed to give everything over to God. Here comes that same man running down the aisle. Fill me, Lord. Fill me. And with that, somebody yelled from the back, Don't fill him, Lord. He's got a leak. We're all leaky, aren't we? Some of us have more leaks than others. We've all sprung leaks from time to time. But he wants to fill you. And He'll continue to fill you. But it's up to us of whether we'll decide to make that decision or not. And if you've never been filled by Him, if you've never made that commitment, today can be that opportunity. You can come to the back and we can talk about it. And I encourage you to come to the back and talk to me about what it means to be filled with Jesus, to give your life over to Him. Maybe you've been on the path of holiness, but you kind of compartmentalize some certain certain things in your life and you just need to talk about it. You need to pray about it. You need someone just to listen to you. If you work for the government, don't come to the back. But anyone else, is what, seriously, come to the back and talk with us. I'll be back there. The elders are going to be back there with me. We would love to talk to you about what it means to, to get back on that right track. How do we do it? How do we stay on that straight and narrow when it's so hard in this life? Whatever decision you have to make, will you make it as we continue our worship? Please stand.